At our special congregational meeting this morning, we voted to approve a new mission statement that we join together to encourage spiritual growth, to build a beloved community, and to act for peace and justice. To reflect on how we might live out that mission, I'd like to invite us to consider this new mission statement from the perspective of the life and thought of W.E.B. Du Bois. Among Du Bois' many accomplishments, he was the first African American to earn a PhD from Harvard University. He was one of the co-founders of the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. And it's been interesting to see how that phrase sort of dropped out of favor and is now sort of back in vogue, but flipped as people of color. Uh, He was also a fierce activist for racial equality for decades. If you want to learn more about Du Bois, uh, an excellent new book by Gary Dorian is titled uh, The New Abolition, W.E.B. Du Bois and the Black Social Gospel. But perhaps the best entry point into Du Bois' life and thought is his own book, The Souls of Black Folk. If you haven't, if you've never read that book or if it's been many years since you've read it, uh, certainly it's very much worth revisiting. For now, I invite you to hear just one sample of his prose. He wrote, if in the heyday of the greatest of the world's civilizations, it is possible for one people to ruthlessly steal another, drag them helpless across the water, enslave them, debauch them, and then slowly murder them by economic and social exclusion until they disappear from the face of the earth. If the consummation of such a crime be possible in the 20th century, then our civilization is in vain, and this republic is a mockery and a farce. Du Bois could write. He could write powerfully and devastatingly. And his words remain relevant today in our age of the Black Lives Matter movement. Another reason that Du Bois' perspective continues to be relevant, especially to religious progressives such as Unitarian Universalists, is that he had a strong skepticism toward religious orthodoxy. For instance, way back in 1940, he did not hold back at a commencement address at a historically Christian university. He called them out for, quote, a childish belief in fairy tales, a word of, uh, a word of mouth adherence to dogmas, and a certain sectarian exclusiveness. He called their teachings about Jesus, quote, a miserable apprehension of the teachings of Christ. At the same time, similar to the way we try to draw wisdom from all the world's religions balanced with the insights of modern science, Du Bois also had a spiritual wellspring of his own, a keen appreciation for Jesus historically understood, and what could be called a lover's quarrel with the black church. His writings were strewn with religious images and references throughout his career, even after he supposedly dropped religion for Marxism. Du Bois was not anti-religious. He was against faith used for fraud, belief used to bully, and Christianity used to control. 
Indeed, I suspect Du Bois would concur with Pope Francis's blunt evaluation this week of Donald Trump's position on immigration. To quote the pontiff, a person who thinks only about building walls wherever they may be and not building bridges is not a Christian. Go Pope Frank. Returning to Du Bois, one of the most fascinating details about his life is that he died at age 95 on August 27, 1963, the same day that thousands of Americans were on their way to the March on Washington for jobs and freedom. And in a symbolic passing of the torch, Du Bois, who was the lion in the room along with Booker T. Washington of the, the generation preceding King and the struggle for racial equality, that the day after Du Bois died, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. took the stage in front of the Lincoln Memorial to deliver his I Have a Dream speech. Dr. King and the Civil Rights Movement did not emerge out of nowhere. King and many of his allies were part of what is known as the Black Social Gospel Movement. That is, that the gospel of the Christianity is not just about individual salvation. It's not just about individual fire insurance so that you won't go to hell. That Christianity, understood rightly, is a social gospel. It is social good news about how we need to rightly order our society to be fair for all people. And it helps periodically to take a step back out of the trenches of peace and justice work, to take the longer view of how one generation can lay the groundwork, often in unpredictable ways, for progress in the next generation. To consider what that might mean to take the long view of where we might go and what seeds we might put in the ground here at UUCF, I invite you to look at the insert to your order of service that is titled Continuum on Becoming an Anti-Racist Multicultural Congregation. When I first signed up for an anti-racism workshop more than a decade ago, this continuum is one of the parts of the training that most resonated with me and is most stuck with me. As with many open-minded, curious, progressive people, it's relatively easy for me intellectually to begin to see the difference between individual racism, uh, personal prejudice, and institutional racism, the more systemic, insidious biases in our criminal justice system, in our education system, and many more aspects of our society. But I've become increasingly aware that changing the minds of individuals is only the first step in the very long journey of dismantling institutionalized racism. Studying this chart over time, and I, we printed copies of it because we want you to take this home and spend, spend some time with it. And so studying this chart over time has led me to celebrate how far we've already come, thanks to Du Bois, thanks to King, and so many others at the grassroots level. But also to recognize how far we have to go and to see some of the steps needed to get there. Specifically on the chart, you'll see three paradigm shifts regarding our approach and our attitude towards racial and cultural differences. The movement from experiencing those differences negatively to tolerating those differences paternalistically to celebrating those differences and integrating those differences. As a native son of South Carolina, and you know, we all have in mind the, the recent um, results of the uh, last night, the headlines. As a native son of South Carolina, I know all too well the history and the ongoing lingering effects of having exclusive segregated institutions in your culture. 
And we are right to celebrate the ways in which we have made progress on the continuum beyond that point. That being said, it is important to recognize that movement along this continuum often happens not in a linear progression, but as a spiral, so that even as you move forward, there are ways in which you you also circle back. From that perspective, I'd invite us to consider that collectively at UUCF, we have not arrived. I don't think this is shocking news, really. I mean, just to be frank, if we look around the room this morning, we have not fully arrived at being an anti-racist, multicultural um, institution. And I invite you to consider that collectively as UUCF, it's not about any of us individually. It's saying, what are we collectively? There are many ways in which we are, though, an awakening institution. We just aren't yet fully awakened. And this continuum invites us to see some of the ways that we might continue to awaken. So this continuum comes out of congregations and organizations that have become more anti-racist and much more multicultural than we are and saying, this is how we did it. And so some of the ways we'll know whether we're continuing to advance on this curriculum is if we collectively as UUCF are increasingly desiring to eliminate racially discriminatory practices and inherent white advantages, whether or not we're sponsoring anti-racism training, and whether or not we're developing a deeper understanding of accountability to oppressed communities. Those are our growing edges. The challenge is, is to admit that we're in the messy middle. But an honest confession can also embolden us to do what it takes to become a more inclusive, transformed institution. Looking at just a few more of the bullet points on that continuum, we'll know if we are making progress, if we are beginning to intentionally redefine and restructure upon anti-racist perspectives at all levels of our internal life and our relationships in the larger community. Whether we're building clear lines of accountability to oppressed communities on all levels of our institutional life, and whether we are auditing and restructuring all levels of our institutional life for full participation by people of color, including their worldview, culture, and lifestyles. Now, it's impossible to say here in the messy middle in advance what that will look like specifically here at UUCF, but I am grateful to be with you on this journey. In the words of one black liberation theologian, set your pace as if you're going to be doing anti-racist, multicultural work for the rest of your life. But he continues, there is joy in this work because it enhances your humanity. For me, that has been true, that that the ways in which I've become, I'm not there yet, I'm not fully evolved, but the ways over the years that I've become increasingly feminist, the ways in which I've been involved in racial justice advocacy work, the ways in which I've been involved in an ally on the journey for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender liberation, the ways in which I've increasingly aware of the needed activism around um, accessibility issues for people living with disabilities, that has brought joy to my life as I've become a better human being, more fully connected to humanity. And you have only to look at the headlines to see the ways in which people who are not engaged in the emancipatory liberationist work are 
you know, instead of becoming more deeply connected to humanity, are trying to belittle others and simply perpetuate the white supremacist capitalist patriarchy and thereby diminishing others and working against the work of peace, justice, and liberation. So the turning point from this messy middle of paternalistically tolerating differences in, in both intentional and unintentional ways to fully and authentically celebrating differences is also the place where Dr. Du Bois can be a guide for us today. Du Bois wrote that living as a person of color in a white supremacist culture has given people of color, including himself, what he called a double consciousness. Some of you may remember that term from Du Bois's work. In the spoken meditation, Danielle described a similar double consciousness from growing up female in a sexist culture. Likewise, there is a double consciousness that developed among um, lesbian, gay, bisexual people who, and transgender people who were in the closet, right? A, a double consciousness, as well as for people living with disabilities in a ableist world. Du Bois wrote that his experience of double consciousness emerged from being forced to look at himself through the eyes of others, quote, of measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity. So there was the way he knew himself to be as this young person of color growing up in Massachusetts, knowing himself to be intelligent, knowing himself to be an engaged person with something to give the world, and then this double consciousness developed as he experienced himself measuring his soul by the tape of a world that looked on at him in amused contempt and pity. But here's the turn towards celebrating differences, is that his transformative response was not to keep what he knew about himself in the closet, so to speak, but to um, hold up his racial and cultural difference in tension with the dominant culture. So memorably, in The Souls of Black Folk, to give you just one example, Du Bois began each chapter with a double epigraph. He paired Negro spirituals with verses by Byron, Schiller, Whittier, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Swinburne, Tennyson and others, taking what he knew from his black experience and pairing it with what he had learned at Harvard and holding them up together. In a racist and segregated society, Du Bois was powerfully asserting the equivalency of black culture with white European culture, and that's one of the many ways in which he helped set the stage for King and others to follow. Today we call this practice of double consciousness intercultural competency, and you can go to trainings and how to become more interculturally competent. It's that ability to move in and out of different cultural worldviews, to build bridges between cultures and integrate cross-cultural perspectives. And what you'll find, and you may well know this, as you talk to people of color, especially in anti-racist settings, is they'll say, sure, we're already doubly conscious. We already have intercultural competency because we have our own culture, and then we have to inter interact with the white uh, dominant culture. And so, the, and so the call of anti-racism word that comes out of that is for the white dominant culture to step aside and see itself increasingly as one among... You don't have to get rid of white European culture. You just have to stop being a white European monoculture and, and, allow a, uh, and, and see yourself as one among many cultures, not the one. But keep in mind that phrase from earlier, there is a joy in this work because what you'll find as you begin to, to be one among many is you'll find your, your humanity 
enhanced. And you'll find that you're enhancing the humanity of those around you. To give you a recent example of what I mean, let me say two sentences that you'll rarely hear come out of my mouth. The first is, let's talk about the Super Bowl. And two, let's talk about Beyonce. Because in general, I'm not a big fan of the Super Bowl or Beyonce. You know, people are always telling me regarding the Super Bowl, for example, just watch it for the commercials. Watch it for the commercials? I canceled cable more than a decade ago and watch everything on Netflix and other things because of my deep and abiding loathing for commercials. So I'm supposed to watch the Super Bowl for the commercials? I've just never understood that argument. But I'm um, very interested in Beyonce's performance at this year's Super Bowl halftime show, which I watched later on YouTube. Uh, Super Bowl 50, um, I'm told, was held in the San Francisco Bay Area. But it was not the 50th anniversary of the Super Bowl that Beyonce was interested in celebrating by outfitting her backup dancers in black leather and in um, black, um, black Panther-style berets. Beyonce was trying to remind the nation that the Super Bowl stadium was less than an hour's drive from Oakland, where 50 years ago the Black, Panther, the black Panthers were formed. Backstage, her dancers were prominently photographed with their fists raised in the air in the Black Power salute and holding a sign that read, Justice for Mario Woods, who, who, though armed with only a knife, was shot dead in December by police in San Francisco, this year's Super Bowl host city. To set the stage for this demonstration, Beyonce released a powerful video the day before the Super Bowl titled, Formation. Among the many powerful images in that video, the most moving to me is of a young black boy wearing a hoodie while dancing in front of a line of white police officers in riot gear, invoking the memory of the 17-year-old Trayvon Martin who was murdered four years ago this coming Friday by a white neighborhood watch volunteer who who perceived his black skin in a hoodie as life-threatening. Unlike what happened to Trayvon when the black boy in the video throws up his hands at the end of the dance, the police officers, instead of shooting him, hold up their hands in the hands up, don't shoot gesture, thereby invoking the memory of Michael Brown, who in 2014 was murdered in Ferguson, Missouri by a white police officer. The video then cuts to a wall of graffiti that simply says, stop shooting us. Through the lens of W.E.B. Du Bois, I invite you to consider that Beyonce is challenging the Super Bowl audience to develop a double consciousness, a double consciousness that people of color have had since they arrived in this country uh, through the Middle Passage to develop a double consciousness in regard to race, to see the world more clearly and truthfully by viewing it not only from a perspective of white privilege, but also from the black experience of institutionalized racism. Now, there's a lot more to say about the unconscious or perhaps conscious racism behind the protests about whether President Obama even has the right to nominate a Supreme Court justice to the hashtag Oscars so white that will be protests that will be coming to a head next weekend. 
Um, but for now, as I've been reflecting on our new mission statement, two next steps occur to me if we want to take more seriously the challenge of living into these goals of encouraging spiritual growth, of building a beloved community, and of acting for peace and justice. Now, these two steps that I'm about to name may or may not be the steps that we choose to take because this is a journey that we are on together and must discern the best way forward, but either one could be a strong catalyst in turning our dreams into deeds. The first step might be hosting next fall an eight-session workshop here at UUCF titled Beloved Conversations, which is a new experiential curriculum. What happened is that when the first African-American president of the UUA um, finished his term and was called to be the new settled minister at uh, Portland UU, which is our largest congregation on the West Coast, he found pe- he went there to be their minister, and he felt that like people were just sort of expecting him to be the the great Black Hope, I guess. You know, you're gonna we called a Black minister. We're just we're gonna become you know magically. Y'all know the the, the, the literary theme of the magical Negro, right? So we can talk about it later if you're not sure what I'm talking about. But, you know, we're gonna, the magical Negro is going to save it, right? You see this over and over. Yoda is a magical Negro. For example, person of color is going to magically save the day for white, be- white protagonists. So he said, I'm not going to do this. So he called one of the professors at Meadville Lombard and said, please design a curriculum that will take our congregation through um, racial, racial congrega- conversations about race and identity that will be healing and lead us to a place of hope and into a, future, into a multicultural future. So Beloved Conversations is now more widely available and uh, it's, it's something we should consider hosting here. In, in, uh, so a second step might be recruiting members and friends of UUCF to attend next year's annual Leading Edge Conference in New York City. If you're feeling especially motivated, um, the so that would be the 11th annual Leading Edge Conference. The 10th, the 10th Leading Edge Conference is actually coming up this April 15th to 17th. So there's still time to sign up if you, you know, want to go two months from now. The focus of this conference is preparing ethical leaders for a just society. And I've heard from many UU congregations that they've experienced transformative results from taking a critical mass of leaders from their congregation to these Leading Edge Conferences, which network activists, analysts, preachers, and poets, prophets, uh, teachers, trainers, and writers. Closer to home, uh, in early March, there were actually three anti-racism-related trainings and events here in the what's known as the Joseph Priestley District of the UUA. So you can Google Joseph Priestley District or email me if you're interested in any of those trainings in early March. But again, I am grateful to be on this journey with you and excited to see where it takes us. For now, I'll close with these words from Peter Morales, who is the current um, president of the UUA and also the first Latino president of the Unitarian Universalist Association. He writes, My dream for Unitarian Universalism is to confess that we do not have all the answers. He's saying, you know, there are a lot of smart Unitarian Universalists, but we need to confess that we don't have all the answers. And we need to admit that this is hard work. That anti-racism and multiculturalism is as rigorous a spiritual discipline as we will ever encounter. But we not only have gifts to give each other, we are gifts to each other. And our journey toward wholeness has just begun. 
We're not sure of the way, and we need to admit that we have lost our way in the past because we believed our destination was in sight and that it was easily reached. We were a bit arrogant and a bit naive, but we are wiser now, and we know that we will not get to the promised land soon, but we know we need to walk together and to walk humbly. So come, let us make that journey together, just one step at a time, paso por paso, hand in hand, mano y mano. Come, let us leave no one behind, because together we can make this journey. So come. This is a traditional spiritual arranged in much more modern context by the brilliant Moses Hogan, who left us way too young. But I like to remind people of the origin of these words. This comes from the black slave tradition, the work songs that they did as they worked out in the hot sun, trying to keep themselves moving, the rhythmic kinds of ideas that they used to to help their work. But there was a text to that that they sang a lot about the Christian principles of being saved and going home across the Jordan River and those kinds of words. But those words really had a secondary meaning, and that was a subtext that they used to talk about finding their way to freedom. The home that they were really looking forward to was their their freedom someday and the others that had gone before them. So this, this particular song, to me, is a song of hope, that there, there's a hopefulness that, indeed, if the Lord saved Daniel from all these horrible things and the children from the fiery furnace and the Hebrews from, I can't even remember all the words. Yeah, okay, the Hebrews from the fire and the children from the whatever. Uh, the, the words are in your program. Um, <laughs> that surely I, I will be saved also. There's that hope, there's that faith that I will also be saved. So I invite you to find a way that you can relate yourself to those words. Yes, <laughs> 
Didn't my Lord deliver Daniel, then why not everyone? So in this country, in the early 19th century, the early 1800s, enslaved people in the field singing, did my Lord deliver Daniel, then why not everyone, was a way of, in a terrible, oppressive situation, to kindle hope that there were an enslaved people in the past that were freed, that found liberation, that found emancipation, to kindle hope that that might happen to us. And likewise, when you, if you remember President Obama's second inaugural address, he said we have to remember our social justice story, the progress that has been made in this country from Seneca Falls to Selma to Stonewall. That when just as enslaved people in the fields of this country looked back to ancient stories of freedom and liberation, when, when Sojourner Truth in a universalist congregation thought back on, all right, the Civil War has been fraught and black men have the vote, what about me? Ain't I a woman? If you cut me, do I not bleed? She looked back to that and said, what about the vote for women? And then you had the gay liberation movement, which didn't come from white men, right? It didn't come from gay white men. That The Stonewall riots were about transgender folk who were tired of their bar in Grinch Village in New York City being raided, and they rose up, and they rioted, and that launched the decades-long LGBT liberation movement that culminated in this country in Obergefell versus Hodges, though it's not over yet because we don't have complete job security and protection. So that, that fight continues. And so the ways in which these movements inspire and influence one another, what has been called a crescendoing and cresting into a great tidal wave of justice that ultimately we're in the battle for collective liberation, freedom, and equality for all. So as you go from this place, continue your journey in love. Care for one another and care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. And whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. So live boldly and with thanksgiving. Go in peace. Thank you.